As I mentioned, this passage tonight is rather long, but we're going to break it down into five sections, and I'm going to warn you each new section, so that way we can eat this passage digested a little bit better, piece by piece, and you can see how it's structured. Maybe that'll help you a little bit, and we're going to seek to understand it and how it is fulfilled in Christ in the message this evening. So it's Leviticus 16. The first has to do with the preparation of the high priest. And this is importantly fulfilled also in Christ, as we'll see. So first, the preparation. On the Day of Atonement, some of you have known perhaps the name of the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brothers, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his water and body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people two male goats, for a sin offering and one ram for a burn offering. Now for the offerings themselves, that's the second part. First preparation, now the offerings. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away in the wilderness to Azazel. And that is usually, by the way, called the scapegoat or the goat that escapes. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he shall, does not die." And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat. On the east side, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Then he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so shall he do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. Shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood with it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place, 
and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And now the next section is when Aaron shall come back into the tent of meeting. Then Aaron shall come back into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments, that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer the burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people and the fat of the sin offering shall shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. Now the meaning and the rules for the day of atonement. It shall be a statute to you forever. Within a seventh month, in the day of the month, tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall make atonement for be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the body linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, for the altar, shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. May the Lord bless this passage too to our understanding. And once again, you will see an outline in the bulletin entitled, All in One Day. And let's pray again. Lord, we are relieved not to have to do these sacrifices anymore. That our Lord Jesus Christ has offered himself once for all, and that is a tremendous relief and blessing to us. Help us to get the significance of the fullness of our atonement in Christ this evening again, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, after reading this chapter, I'm not surprised if your head is spinning. When you read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, you might feel like falling down. It kind of makes you dizzy. How many sacrifices are there? How can I keep track of all these things? It's too complicated. It's too distant from us. We don't have any idea, really, very little idea, of what it was like to have to live in Israel and out of all these sacrifices offered. But the basic point is the problem of sin. How do you keep track of the sacrifices? That's one thing. But how do you know all of your sins? How can you keep track of all of your sins? 
How can you possibly imagine that your sins could be paid for? And those are the three questions that might be in our hearts as we seek to understand that Christ removes every one of our sins on the cross in one day. Again, the Day of Atonement. It's the center of the book. You might say it's the center of the sacrifices and offerings in the Bible. Many sacrifices are offered throughout the year, but only this sacrifice happens once a year. There are many aspects of the work of Christ, but there is one result, and that is complete atonement, complete payment, as we see again and again in Leviticus 16, for all of our sins in one day. But there are questions about our sins, and you might have some of these. They are in our hearts, and it's a question, the first question is very much like a question given to us in one of the Psalms, talking about secret sins. How can we know our sin? Cleanse me from secret faults, the psalmist says. But secret sins, how do we know what they are? And if we don't know what they are, how can we be cleansed from them? We know that God even cleanses us from sins that we don't even know about. And many times we don't see our sin as we should. Our pride magnifies our virtues and diminishes our faults. We might even think we have very little sin to care about, as we saw this morning. Now in Laodicea, the church, one of the churches in Revelation, it says, you need nothing, you think, when actually you are poor and blind and miserable and naked. So it is that many people will admit that they have faults of various sorts, and you might agree that you're a sinner. But generally, no specifics come to mind. You might say, please forgive me of all of my sins. But what about thinking about those various sins? Our confession many times has no depth or no breadth, even among those who believe in total depravity, that our sins come from sinful motives and from our hearts. Do we confess our sinful motives? Do we confess our judgmentalism, our pride, our slowness to confess, our impatience with others or with God? Pride blinds us, but let us not forget that God is not blind. He sees every one of our hearts and all of our sin. It's not secret from the Lord. Psalm 90 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins. Here we are again. In the light of your presence. Now, sometimes I will give what I might call a book cover illustration. I probably gave it in the inquirer's class for those of you who are there. But I'm going to do it again very briefly. And it's not easy to do in a way. We're going to imagine that we have two books here. The first book, I'm going to pick this book, so to speak. And let's imagine that this is you. It's black for a reason. All right. This book has in it all the things that you have done wrong, all the things that you should have done right but you didn't do, all the things that you wanted to do that were evil but didn't get around to actually doing it, but you would have done so if you had an opportunity. Every thought and intention of your heart... (laughs) Awful reading, wouldn't it be? Do you think God knows the contents of this book? And suppose on this book's cover, it has your name, and put your name there in your mind. Just put it in there. This is me. Here are the sins that God knows about and that you have done. And there is no way you can make up 
for these sins. Now let us say we have another book, and I'm going to use my red-covered iPad this time, and imagine this is a different book. And this is a book in which all the things that Christ ever did, Christ ever thought he wanted to do and did, all the thoughts and intentions of his heart, and think they were only pure and holy continually, and that he fulfilled every aspect of the law of God from his heart, in his mind, in his soul. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his neighbor as himself. Who could do that but God himself in the flesh? So Jesus Christ, in other words, has been the Holy One, and we have been sinful. What if Jesus Christ were to cover our sins? What if he were to take this book of sin and throw it into the fire? And it, was as, it would be as if he was condemned in our place. We put the cover of Jesus on this book, and then we throw it in the fire. Our sins are gone. But what also if we were to have a new cover on our book? And I'm going to take this red cover and put it on top of the black covered book. What this means is all the things that you have done are now covered with the blood of Christ. And not only that, but all the things that Jesus did are counted to have been done by you. That is, you have, in God's eyes, kept the law Perfectly. This is what we call justification. Just as if we had never sinned, just as if we had kept all the law perfectly, so that God will let us into heaven on the basis of an absolute purity bought by the blood of Christ. So he throws our sins into the fire and he brings us into heaven. The only way that could happen is for Christ to suffer in our place and for our book cover to be replaced with Christ's name, his name is upon us, and we are cleansed from all of our sins. Well, that's the book cover illustration I'd like to give you in brief. Realize, too, we can never know all of our sins. God knows them all. But we can never know all of our sins. The tortured conscience of the Israelite, day by day, can you imagine trying to remember every sin and then to bring a sin offering? I, I try to figure out what kind of time of day they would have in doing anything else if they were really to do it right. How can we know all of our sins? Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Sometimes we don't even know our errors. We don't know the law of God well enough. But all men have enough light to condemn them, according to the scriptures. But there's also willful ignorance. We don't want to hear it when somebody points out something you've done wrong. Are you going usually, oh, thank you very much for telling me. I hope you will be thankful eventually. But at first you're going, what, me? I can think of a few things you've done wrong too. And then you don't even listen. You don't even care. When a Christian begins to see his sin, the law convicts him inside. And he enters into a kind of an endless cave of catacombs. If you've ever been spelunking, I haven't. I don't want to do it. There are those that go into caves. And they go into this dank, damp, dark, dank hole in the ground. And they find out that there are many, many other little chambers off that single original tunnel until you realize that you might get easily lost in that cave. If we were going to discover every sin of ours, we would be lost in our understanding. How could I have done all the things 
that I have done, the layers of sin, of pride and fear, our sins in themselves. And even ignorance does not excuse our sin. We are in a desperate condition. And so let's just say we try to keep track of our sin. How can I ever keep up with it all? There are some jobs that never seem to end. I may have told you about the house we had in Charlotte that had 30 large trees in it. And every fall we try to rake up all the leaves and they pile up and they pile up and they pile up and we throw them back into the creek behind the property and then the leaves grow again and the same thing happens the next fall. We never can catch up to some chores. Or washing clothes. Some of you have a few children, I've noticed. How many loads of laundry do you do? And you do it just once a week? Once a month? Stop laughing. You do it seemingly all the time. There's piles of laundry sitting there, and you're running your washer, and you're running your dryer, and you wonder how long it will be. Or if you've ever been ill or experienced chronic illness, perhaps you wonder how long that's going to last, how long until the pain finally goes away. But of course, the question has to do with sin. How much longer will we be tortured by the clutter of our iniquities? If we try to deal with our sin, it's like trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. Can you imagine that? We used to have a big pool in our backyard. For kids, it was one of these pools that had like eight, eight inches deep and maybe six feet across or eight feet across. We one time used that and emptied it with buckets of water, and we had no, no other water coming into our house. It took a long time to get rid of all that water. What if we used a teaspoon? How long would that take? What if we decided to empty the ocean with a teaspoon? How long would that take? You see my point? It's, if we were to deal with our sins individually and count them all, as the Bible says, they would be higher than our heads. Psalm 139 says, If I could count my sins, they would be higher than our heads. Can we count the stars in the sky? Can we count the sand on the seashore? That's how many sins we have. We don't praise God. We do not thank God. We have dullness. We fail to think of our neighbor as we ought. We are boastful, bitter, jealous, envious. We want to steal things. Sometimes we do. We are lying about what we have done. Sometimes when we're caught doing things that are bad. And some people say, well, the lie is almost worse than the original sin because at least if you say you sinned, you know about it. But now you try to cover it up on top of that. What if you try to lie to God? What does he think about that? Cursing our parents, blasphemy, witchcraft, adultery, rape, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, idolatry, murder. They're all listed in the Bible. And you think, well, I've not done any of these things except if we wanted to or cherish that iniquity in our hearts. Our repentance, more than that, can never be perfect. We try to remember our sins, perhaps, but how can we remember remember them all? And therefore, we must cling in faith to Christ alone, even for the cleansing of secret sins, or sins that we have lost track of. As the hymn says, could my grief forever flow, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Suppose we happen to be able to count our sins. What are we going to do about them then? Should we try to pay for every sin? How is that going to work? There is too much sin. There is too much wickedness that we cannot make up for by any means. All of these sacrifices in the Old Covenant 
Hebrews says, can never cleanse our conscience. Look at all these piles of dead animals outside the camp. That's how bad our sin continues to be. How long would it count take to count all of our sins? Eternity? How long would it take for, to pay for all of our sins, assuming we could forever? How long did it take to remove all of our sins in reality, all in one day? That's the relief, brothers and sisters, that we finally have. And how do we know that? It comes from God's Word. I want to summarize for you this chapter in just a few minutes. The first part of the chapter I've told you was the preparation from the priest. The priest has to be ready. He has to put on special garments for the Day of Atonement. Normally, he's fairly gloriously dressed in various fine-looking clothes. But for the Day of Atonement, he takes off his fine clothes, puts on simple linen garments, and goes into the presence of God. Now, that might seem like sort of a strange thing, but think about it. Jesus Christ became humbled. He was a glorious God and Savior forever, and now he takes on the plainness and the simplicity of our humanity, that he might take upon himself human nature, that he might go to the cross and die. This priest could not die for the people, but he had to prepare himself in the simplicity of these simple garments, and he humbled himself, you might say. He divested himself of his normal glory of the priesthood, and then he washed everything because he's sinful himself. Everything had to be washed, sprinkling of blood, all kinds of washings, his garments, his, the baptisms, the many baptisms that were done, and including then a confession of his own sins and the sins of the people. Here he is standing in the stead of Christ saying, I will tell of the sins of my people and then I will take them away. The priest couldn't, but Jesus could. And therefore, there are offerings of the bull and the goat and the ram and the sin offering. And then he brings the sacrifice on behalf of Israel and declares that this is in place of them. And now their sins are gone. The animals are sacrificed and the scapegoat is let out into the desert having the hands of the high priest put upon the head of the scapegoat as if it said, our sins are way out there in the desert, never to be found again. They are paid for and they are gone. And then he is dressed again in verses 23 and 24 in his ceremonial dress. He is reclothed. He puts back on his normal glorious Garb. Now, if you're following me, you might see the imagery here. He offers a sacrifice in humble, simple linen garments. After the sacrifice is done, he puts on his glorious garments again. I don't think it's pushing it too far to say Christ offered himself in simplicity and sacrifice and humility, but afterwards he was given a name which is above every name. He was glorified at his resurrection. This is kind of a picture of that same thing. The humble sacrifice, the glorious reinvestiture, you might say, the revelation of the glory of God again. Just as Christ was prepared as priest, 
He offered himself as a sacrifice once and for all, so now he receives the glory that is due his name for being the only one who could pay for sins, and he actually did it. And we can cry out with Jesus that cry of victory, Lord God in heaven, it is finished. It is finally finished. Your sins are all paid for in one day. There is a bit of a footnote here, and I'm a little puzzled by it myself, and so are many commentators. What does it mean the scapegoat goes out into the desert for Azazel? We're not really sure. It might be the name of kind of a a goat demon that was often worshipped as a false god, we don't know, or symbolic of the devil himself, or sins cast off into hell, that's possible, as Christ on the cross was, in a sense, in hell itself. I'm not entirely sure of that, but in case you wondered, that's my footnote. Meanwhile, the blood had been taken into the Holy of Holies. The sins are gone. Everything is clean. The house of God is undefiled. And the sins have been removed all in one day. In Hebrews 7, it says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those then for the sins of his people. Christ didn't have to confess his own sins. That's why he's the perfect high priest. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, Hebrews chapter 9, he entered through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, once for all into the holy place, not by the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. The priest didn't shed his own blood. Christ shed his own blood and had that blood, as it were, sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. Hebrews 10, when Christ had offered for one time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once a year, however, and so it would come along again, every single year. It was still once a year. The other sacrifices often happened every day. But for the entire year, the atonement covered the sins of the people, symbolic of the fact that for time and all eternity, our sins are covered by the blood of Christ because Christ has been offered once for all. His blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat once and for all. And it is done. It is finished and God will not ever punish us again or even think about it. Therefore, the only sin that is not forgiven is the sin of rejecting the cleansing fountain once and for all. That we sometimes call the unpardonable sin. I know about Christ, but I don't care about him. I don't care if I'm condemned. I walk proudly into hell. Well, that pride is not going to last forever. It will it. But if we humbly confess the blood of Christ... We come humbly into the presence of God, standing there in the robes of his righteousness, being justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. David says, wash me thoroughly from my sins. He admits that he was conceived and born in sin. He was a sinner before he was born. Think about that. The little baby that's born into your household, he or she's already a sinner. She's already under the condemnation of God, but there is hope for her, for him, for us, for all who believe. 
Jesus Christ says all other sins can be forgiven. You can walk out of the camp, as it were, in Israel's day, knowing that there has been that covering for your sin. You can walk freely into the light of the countenance of the Lord, knowing you shall not be condemned. You can walk into his presence and look upon his face, and instead of being consumed, you are sanctified and glorified. Full justification as over against full condemnation. Wretched man that I am, Paul would say, who can, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who has given us our Lord Jesus Christ. Because all in one day, all in one day, you know there are failures every day for you. Failures in your own repentance, and you must repent. But we must come to the Lord like the man who was confronted with his sin and finally understood. He said, to the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. Help my unbelief. Even when I fail, even when I sin, we come to the Lord for daily cleansing as long as well as having come before him for the atoning blood of Christ to cover our sins in full atonement. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified, who is to condemn. And that's why neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know the peace that passes all understanding? That's how you get it, by turning to Christ for full coverage of every single last one of your sins, all paid for in one day. Shall we pray? Lord God, we don't understand how it could happen. We don't understand the fullness of the righteousness, the pure perfection, the absolutely staggering innocence of the Lamb of God who has done it all, who has accomplished it all, and then given it all to us. How could that be? We surely should be ashamed of our ingratitude. We pray that you will therefore help us to walk in newness of life, that you have also paved the way before us that we might walk in that newness and do it in us this week even more than you have before. In Jesus' name.